Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Whole Whale Podcast, where we learn from leaders about new ideas and digital strategies to make a difference in the social impact world. My name is Carisha Martinez, one of the digital advertising whalers here at Whole Whale, and your host for today's show. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the Using the Whole Whale Podcast, where we learn from leaders about new ideas and digital strategies making a difference in the social impact world. This podcast is a proud production of Whole Whale, a B Corp digital agency. Thank you for joining us. Now, let's go learn something. Today on the pod, we have two guests, which is pretty different than what we usually have. Um, So today we have David O'Brien and Matthew Craig, co-authors of Building Smart Nonprofits, A Roadmap for Mission Success. David, Matthew, how are you guys doing today? It's great. Thank you. Very good. Thanks. Thanks for coming on the pod. It's always a good time. Um, so let's just jump right in. Can you tell us a little bit more about your book um, and the importance of it in non in the nonprofit sector? Sure. Well, uh, the reason one of the reasons that we wrote the book was because of our experiences in the nonprofit sector. And uh, you know, I served on a whole bunch of boards after I left the finance industry, uh, finance industry, uh, and for many years, and became learned two things. One, I didn't really know what I was doing. I wasn't trained in how to be a nonprofit nonprofit board. And that's important because you're dealing with people's lives. So I went back to school and got some more education. Then I got really got into it. And the other factor was that I was always frustrated with the lack of resources for the sector. Uh, People were always struggling to find funding. And uh, so there's those two areas that made me want to to, uh, write the book. And uh, then I went back to school and I was involved with all kinds of young, exciting young people who wanted to go into the sector, not like me when I was uh, young, wanted to just go to finance and make money. And that got really got me excited. So it really was an effort to try and help them. But I realized that, you know, I needed someone who was born with an iPhone in his hand. So I uh, invited my good friend, Matt Craig, to join me. Uh, and uh, he, he uh, of course, uh, is a finance person as well. Um, so we both come from that perspective. But that was the purpose, to help nonprofits, help people who are trying to do good stuff. Matt, why don't you give your thoughts? Yeah, well, that's all true. And uh, I, I just start a little bit uh, further back with me. I, I was supposed to be an astronaut. I was going to go uh, and get my degree in astronautical aeronautical engineering. And I, I studied that for a couple of years. And and I realized at some point that astronauts uh, have day jobs and they don't just simply go into space seven days a week, which was a, a crushing blow to uh, my career plans. And I didn't really know what to do. So uh, I, I kind of... Uh, toiled for a little while in an academic way station at university and uh, ended up taking uh, a smattering of classes from all over the place and uh, ended up uh, gravitating toward business and banking in particular. And that's where I started uh, 20 some years ago. And, and through that experience, I've worked with nonprofits as an advisor. I currently uh, uh, lead the nonprofit banking group for a financial institution here in San Diego, where David and I live. And uh, through those experiences, have have just come to realize what David pointed out so well, which is that you know, to a person, nonprofits and their leadership are optimists. They're in the make the world a better place business. They are always passionate about what they do and, and their mission and the cause, and they want to help. Uh, and and so often they do but also uh, many of them need a little assistance and, and some help from uh, a variety of stakeholders. And what we wanted to do through writing this book was to uh, distill from organizations and leaders who are doing it at the top of their game, who are doing it so well and so effectively, what really makes their organizations 
as successful and impactful as they can be and take that knowledge and put it out there in the world with the hope that the other organizations can benefit from it. Yeah, I love that. And I think it really ties into a narrative that I've been finding while doing these podcasts, right? So oftentimes, especially when it comes to nonprofits receiving funding, there are kind of two sides of the coin. Um, One where it's more like stories driven in terms of really emphasizing that impact, talking about the stories and the lives that this nonprofit is doing. And on the flip side of that coin, a lot of nonprofits seem to go the route of more a business model in a way, really focusing on the numbers and the data and the results that they drive um, in a less stories focused area. Do you guys see that kind of flip of the coin in terms of the nonprofits that you worked with? Or is that maybe not a narrative that's as prominent as I think? No, it is? I think it I think it fits in very well with two two areas that we found uh, in our research. Uh, we, as Matt mentioned, we interviewed 60 or, or more thought leaders and heads of uh, foundations and nonprofits across the country. And what we found, the ones that were doing really, really well did two, two items, a lot of items stood out, but two uh, in particular on that note is, first of all, uh, the funding model. Um, and uh, by the way, we don't call it a business model in, some, in, in nonprofits that's, that's uh, sometimes frowned upon and almost as a lightning rod for good reason, because nonprofits are not businesses, they're different. They tend to, mm. you know, when you have a business, you are basically producing a product and you sell it to a customer. Well, with nonprofits, very often the funder is not the customer, not the person who's receiving the product. Mm. Um, so what we found is those that were extremely successful, were, they found a way to match what we call match money with mission. Uh, they would find a way to, to do what they do very, very well and find a way of monetizing it uh, in such a way that they can have a sustainable long-term source of revenue. Um, now, one example uh, is most nonprofits have intellectual property. They don't think of it as intellectual property. They don't think of it as Silicon Valley kind of stuff, but they do. They know how to do things very, very, very well. Mm-hmm. And they find ways to monetize that intellectual property uh, in such a way that they have uh, basically a sustainable source of revenue. So I think on, that's a, on the quote business or funding model on that point. On the impact, um, what we found is there's a growing movement uh, to, to really determine what your impact is, but not do it in the old fashioned ways. In the old days, they used to do double blind studies and they take a lot of time and there'd be lots of work involved and, and take a long time to get the results. And what we found is now increasingly they're coming up with what we, what we call evaluation hacks. Find something very, very simple to measure it, measure it uh, very, very effectively so you can have a feedback loop. Uh, obviously, it's very timely. It doesn't cost you an enormous amount of money and people are willing to pay for that. And then once you have that data, shout it from the rooftops and shout it to the people that you want to fund your organization. And we found it to be very, very effective. Yeah, I agree with that. And one thing we heard in our research was the uh, refrain that uh, data tells and stories sell. And they really work together in that way. You have to have both, Carisha, as you mentioned, um, and then they have to play off of one another. They're, They're really part of a virtuous cycle. And, and that's true because the more insight you have into the impact of your programs and how they're effective, uh, the more effective you'll be at communicating that impact to all of your stakeholders. And, and, and then you have a situation where you create a culture of storytelling where everybody connected to the organization, uh, whether they be board members or leaders or beneficiaries themselves of what your organization is doing, all of these folks are brand ambassadors. And, 
they're not telling the same story. You have a, a living, breathing portfolio of stories that you're comfortable telling that impacts you and the people you're telling the story to in different ways. And, and, and when you have that portfolio of stories that highlight the impact that you're having, they play upon one another and you really have a, a, a magnifying effect of both um, storytelling and impact. It's very powerful. Yeah, definitely. And I love that there's this emphasis on having both, right? Because sometimes numbers don't always tell the story. It's kind of hard to empathize with a number or a digit. So really having those numbers and stories kind of play together and creating a narrative and an organization that, you know, is important and can have a lot of impact. You have to appeal to the uh, data jock and the bleeding heart. Yes. <laughs> Put that on a t-shirt. <laughs> um, awesome. I do want to I'm a little bit more interested in the title of your book, Building Smart Nonprofits, A Roadmap for Mission Success. Can you tell us a little bit more about what a smart nonprofit is and what roadmap they should be following to success? <laughs> well, that's an interesting uh, question. I guess, hopefully we gave them a roadmap, but I think what we try to do is we try to distill uh, based on our experience and then what folks, as Matt said, folks in the industry are doing it the right way. What are the common elements? And, you know, Frank, quite honestly, it always starts with leadership. Um, and I know that, you know, the world does not need another book on leadership, right? But what we tried to do is, is um, distill some items that we found uh, regarding leadership and how uh, they particularly pertain to nonprofits and how particularly we wrote this book for what we call Main Street nonprofits. Now, those are those that are just starting out up to maybe $30 million in revenues, you know, um, you know, the World Health Organization doesn't need this book. Big organizations, they're already doing it. Um, so I think that was the, the purpose of it. I, frankly, leadership when it comes to nonprofits, I'll give you one example. We found uh, that in those, again, those that are hitting the cover off the ball were using their boards very, very effectively. Uh, and, you know, they have, you know, people sit on boards for lots of reasons, but they generally have tremendous expertise and uh, newsflash, that expertise is free and they're happy to contribute. Ask them, put them to work. And one of our pet peeves has been, and my pet peeves has been, you go to the, the board meetings and you know, have committee reports and people and they're boring and, and you know, send them out in advance and then use the people around the table to discuss what's really important. And, and you know, frankly, there's a very, very good book um, which I will recommend, which hits, you know, hits this very, very well. Um, it's called uh, Reforming the Work of Nonprofit Boards, uh, Governance as Leadership by William Chate. Excellent book. And what they talk about in that book is there are really three modes where boards should be involved in governance of a nonprofit. The first is fiduciary. Um, you know, what do the numbers mean? What are the risks we're taking and so forth? Important stuff, but very boring, really boring. And that can be... and and the authors make the point that the board should spend each spend equal time in each of those modes. And we find that that happens in nonprofits that are doing well and doesn't happen in nonprofits that are not doing well. So first mode is fiduciary. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where you're, you're really um, uh, paying attention to, to the numbers. Um, the second mode is one of, of where strategic, more, much more strategic. What are we doing? Where do we want to go? And how do we get there? Uh, and 
again, uh, don't see a lot of time in board meetings, particularly, or maybe outside the board meeting they do, but not at the board meetings. Mm -hmm. uh, and the thirdly is the idea mode. Um, that's where, you know, what are we not thinking about? What should we be doing that we're not covering? What's happening out in the world and how are we still relevant? Um, so I think those are, uh, again, that's one factor is leadership. We call it the board and the CEO, the twin engines of the airplane. Yeah, I, I agree with all that. And uh, I'll, I'll just uh, give you a peek behind the curtain um, and uh, admit something, which is that the title of the book was, was not our idea. Um, this was a suggestion, a good one, by the professionals uh, who published the book. <laughs> our original title was going to be Requiem for the Gala. Hmm. Um, and, and that, we thought, was uh, perfectly apropos. Um, especially insofar as it talks about the uh, the need to seek out alternate modes of funding and not be dependent on uh, mm. the beneficence of uh, a bunch of tipsy donors at your annual uh, gala or golf outing. Uh, but our, our publishers, rightfully so, thought that might be a little too snarky and uh, they were right. So they came up with a much better title, Building Smart Nonprofits. Um, but, you know, I think the key for me and, and what really um, hits on the point of a lot of what we're trying to say is uh, is the uh, subheading, a roadmap for mission success. Um, David mentioned the, uh, the mode of governance that deals with strategy. And that's mm -hmm. so important because you really need a strategy. So many organizations, again, well-intentioned organizations um, kind of set off without that roadmap and just say, I wanna solve X or I wanna, I wanna make the world a better place or they have an idea, but not a fully formed idea of how they want to tackle whatever it is that they're uh, they're looking to improve. Um, without that roadmap, you just you're driving blind. So you mm -hmm. need to put a lot of thought into creating a holistic strategy that helps you accomplish your mission, and and that involves really focusing on outcomes versus right. their analog, which are outputs. And we talk about this a lot in the book. It's, it's a distinction, but it's a critical one. An example would be an organization that uh, is set up to tackle homelessness. Um, it's a convenient, easy metric to look at the number of, of people in shelter beds on any given evening. And you may say, hey, you know, we've got all our beds full and these people have a roof over their head. So we're doing a great job. And that may be true. But it really isn't the appropriate outcome that you're looking to measure. It's an output, a convenient piece of data. What the outcome you're looking to measure is, are you tackling the root cause of what is causing these people to seek shelter in the first place? In other words, are you tackling homelessness? Are you accomplishing mm -hmm. your mission? I don't think anybody would argue that you know, an organization like that has a mission to put people in beds. That's not their right. mission. Their mission is to solve homelessness. And are they really doing it? You have to distinguish between outputs and outcomes. And that's a critical differentiator and something that I think the title of the book speaks to. Yeah, I love that distinction. And I think it kind of maybe calls out a lot of nonprofits that are looking at these kind of output numbers, right? Thinking about what will make us look good to our funders. Oh, we are being able to shelter or have this many people in shelter beds on any given evening, like you said, but not necessarily hitting the problem at its core, really trying to find permanent housing for people or something along that line. Um, I love that you call out that kind of maybe mistake or hurdle that nonprofits need to jump. Can you list any more that you find that are common and a lot of these maybe smaller or younger nonprofits? Well, one of the areas that 
is becoming increasingly important is that nonprofits don't have to go it alone. Uh, they mm -hmm. basically, uh, and in the corporate world, um, there's always a, there are certain uh, items that uh, will compel um, corporate corporations, for-profit corporations to uh, merge and um, basically to, to um, get together and get uh, the um, economies of scale, if you will. Um, you don't have the same um, factors in the nonprofit world. Uh, and of course, many nonprofits are so busy just trying to keep the lights on that they don't even have time to consider it. However, there are increasingly funders who are willing to pay for uh, the investigation of collaborations among nonprofits. They, uh, a collaboration in the broadest sense. That can be a merger, uh, mergers scare people, but very often it's not that. It's I do what I do best, uh, but it's associated with someone else's work who do what they do best. And we don't have to do everything. Let's get together uh, and uh, do it more effectively by working together. And again, there is now funding available, uh, lots of funding available for these, these activities. I'll give you one example. It's an organization that we uh, spoke with in Denver called Work Now, a fascinating organization. Uh, and they're a collaboration of 20 organizations uh, that are uh, in the business of helping people to get good careers in the construction industry. Denver is a hotbed of construction, but there are a lot of people you know, with all the good times, there are a lot of people falling under the cracks and working in, in you know, uh, minimum wage jobs and so forth. And they weren't really getting the benefit of all the growth in Denver. Uh, an organization, uh, the Denver Foundation, funded with a $1 million grant uh, to get this off the ground where 20 organizations came together to assist people uh, in all everything you need to be trained uh, and to establish a, a, a career and getting good jobs. Well, mm -hmm. I think the numbers were in the first year they put to get, they put out 200 people found jobs or were trained and received training and were employed at two to three times the minimum wage. Um, example, uh, you have a young man who, who uh, is working at a dead end uh, job. Well, you know, he, he may not have the ability to take time off uh, and, uh, and go for training. He may not have transportation. He may need daycare for his children. All right. those things, all those providers came together and said, we're gonna do this together. The organization called Work Now and it was extraordinarily effective. And that's an example of how nonprofits can be so much more than they, they do and yet really have an impact in their missions. Yeah, I, I think that's a great example. And I would just, I would just add, Carisha, you'd mentioned, you know, what organizations, especially smaller ones, you know, may be uh, prone to doing or what mistakes might they uh, uh, find or, or pitfalls that they find in their paths. And, you know, I think so many, organizations, again, start out from a place of, I really want to just help. I, I want to mm -hmm. do good. I see that there are ills in the world that need to be cured. I see that there are problems that need to be solved and I want to do what I can to help. Um, and that's wonderful. That is, uh, you know, that, that's the kind of humanity that I think the world needs a lot of and, and a lot more of perhaps uh, now as much as ever. Um, but I don't know that enough organizations ask themselves the follow-up question, which is, does the world need my nonprofit mm. organizations that are looking to, to start people that are looking to start organizations again, for the right reasons often do so without looking around and, and seeing if there are organizations that already exist. 
yeah. that are doing these things particularly well, that are already tackling these problems in an effective and an efficient way. And oftentimes there are. I mean, there are, there are 10,000 plus nonprofits in, in our city alone. Right. And again, all of them started for the right reasons, but there's a lot of overlap. Yeah. Uh, as you can expect, just in having that number of, of organizations, there aren't that many problems to tackle, <laughs> thankfully. Um, so, you know, David mentioned mergers and collaborations and partnerships. Organizations really need to take the time to look into ways to uh, join forces, mm. to, uh, to see if they can consolidate their efforts so that the funders aren't forced to make so many decisions about where to place their scarce resources. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you, cause if you spread those too thin, then it dilutes the impact for everyone. That's, <laughs> that's one thing that I think needs to be focused on and, you know, and it is um, more so now, which is very encouraging. Um, there was a study by a consulting organization called La Piana. We cite their work in our book mm-hmm. that in any given year, only 1% of organizations say they're exploring uh, mergers, collaborations, or permanent wow. partnerships. In this particular year, I think the study was conducted a few months ago, uh, 23% of the respondents to their survey said that they're uh, very seriously considering those arrangements. That's good. That is a yeah. good thing. I think that's a, I love the idea of collaboration. And I think that brings up a really good point, right? But what do you tell nonprofits who are maybe thinking about a merger with another nonprofit in their area that are tackling the same issue, that maybe they're doing it slightly differently um, and they're not really ready to merge or they're kind of tackling a slightly different problem, but still within the same realm. Yeah, comes up all the time. And uh, fortunately, there are uh, a number of, of organizations that are set up uh, to help advise nonprofits on mm-hmm exploring these potential partnerships and mergers. We talk about a few of them uh, in the book. They have grants that are available to help mm-hmm. organizations explore these relationships because they're not right for everybody, uh, but they can be powerful when used, when used properly. And, and I think it all starts with what's the motivation in the first place for merging. So many times uh, the motivation is cost savings. You know, we just don't have the budget to continue doing what we're doing. So let's merge. And those organizations and those relationships often fail mm. because they don't take into consideration other very important factors like culture, right. the board, the leadership. You know, are these cultures compatible? Do they mesh well? Are our missions complementary? Do we bring something to the table that the other organization doesn't have or isn't doing particularly well? Are the results accretive and complementary? Um, if you don't think beyond just the, hey, if we don't merge, we're going to have to go out of business and turn the lights off. Um, so let's let's think about it. If you don't go beyond that, I think uh, you're setting your organization up for failure. I agree. You definitely shouldn't think about a merger if you're just trying to keep the lights on. <laughs> awesome. I think maybe my last question, I always like to end on a note in which nonprofits can take certain steps tomorrow or next week or this month. What would you say to a nonprofit who um, is trying to create maybe more of a smart environment, a smart culture, a more sustainable culture? What steps do you think that they could take maybe tomorrow, next week, this month, um, and going on that road? Well, you know, I mentioned one that is critically important, and that's changing the work of the board and using Mm -hmm. the work of the board more effectively. And I'll give you just a couple examples. Um, These days, (laughs) probably in fashion, how about a sustainability committee? How about people getting together and working on how 
how can we remain stable, not just in these troubled times, but for the long term? Mm-hmm. And of course, people how the, the, the nonprofits don't need more committees in their board members, uh, board <laughs> meetings. But, but the, these are, you know, frankly, perhaps more important than some of the committees they already have. Um, and that's a, a committee with that's made up of board members or community members who, you know, not, we're not talking about finance people. You know, you don't, you only need one finance people, but it's really the broader picture. You know, what are we doing that's sustainable and how can we get there? Uh, And coupled with that, I'll give you another one, Uh, an impact committee. We talked about how important it is for impact. Mm -hmm. Well, let's use the board to help determine ways that we can measure our impact. And once they get involved in that, then they certainly, they'll be better board members as a result of it. Uh, and and as a consequence, if they're better board members, they're better brand ambassadors. Um, and again, they bring a different perspective from the folks who are in the trenches trying to do it day in, day out. So again, I think those are steps that can be done now, and we see nonprofits doing them now. Um, I'll give you another example. One organization that I work with, we got the uh, finance committee together and they said, well, let's play a game. Um, the game is... <laughs> Uh, you know, we are concerned about our revenue. Uh, we need more revenue. So everybody has to come to the meeting with three ideas of how we can generate more revenue. And the name of the game was no, there are no stupid ideas. Uh, <laughs> and then after we, we service them, then the staff of the organization, and it's not our point to debate it, we're coming up with ideas. Right. The staff then comes back to the organization uh, and says, um, you know, these are these are the ones we think have some some merit potentially, let's pursue them. But the person who brings the idea has to agree in advance that if their idea is becomes one they want to pursue, then mm-hmm. they have to be heavily involved in, in the execution of the idea. So these are simple things that can be done in these times. And board members, believe me, are they want to help, but they really don't want to they're, they're concerned about getting in the way of the poor nonprofit staffs are probably working with reduced staffs now because a lot of people have had furloughs and so forth. So the last thing they need is to, is to have to uh, have a board member that's not really contributing and mm. have to contribute value. And that's why I think these days, there are a lot of good things that are going to be coming out when we get to the other side of this, you know, this pandemic. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I would just add that if you're not having open, honest conversations with your funders about what your organization truly needs at this moment in time, then you're doing yourself and your organization a disservice. We heard so often from funders, and we spoke with a number of large foundations and grant makers across the country that they wish their organizations would just be candid about what they truly need and not be afraid to admit failure or worse, sweep it under the rug because they mm. uh, they don't want to tell the hand that feeds them, so to speak, that this program or even the organization writ large just isn't working. Um, organizations that that fund nonprofits say, if we'd only known sooner, then we could have helped. So have those open, honest conversations with funders about what your organization truly, truly needs, especially now. That The good news and what's been really encouraging to learn about as we've researched this book is that there is a palpable shift toward this, what we call trust-based philanthropy, mm-hmm. where essentially organizations as opposed to funders are trusted to know what's best and where the unmet needs are within their communities. It's, it's really a... Uh, uh, a reset of the golden rule, not the do unto others one, although that's that's an important one too, <laughs> but rather the uh, the notion that those with the gold, 
i.e. funders, rule, um, which seems fair on its face. They've got the money, so they get to call the shots, right? But what, what it gave rise to was something I'm sure, Teresha, you and your listeners have heard about, which is the overhead myth. And that's the, mm. the notion that, uh, okay, we'll fund programs. 95 cents of every dollar goes straight to the mission. You've heard that a hundred times before, I bet. And, and organizations themselves, you know, uh, uh, you know, shout it from the rooftops. Well, when you think about it, it's madness because it, it creates a scarcity mentality. And, and you're basically mm -hmm. saying, okay, you can donate money and it can go straight to the mission. But what about all the things that uh, are required, staff, rent, supplies to accomplish that mission? You're telling me we yeah. have to uh, underfund those. And that just leads to a whole host of problems, turnover and you know, staff discontent and uh, mm -hmm. the compensation gap, you know, playing, uh, paying uh, folks at nonprofits wages that, you know, most people uh, can't live on, quite frankly. Yeah. Um, have those open and honest conversations with funders about what you truly need. You will find a more receptive audience than, uh, than you think you will. And that's encouraging. Yeah, definitely. Um, thank you guys for those great tips that nonprofits can take tomorrow, next week, this month. Um, if you got anything, I think communication is key, especially with your board. Um, talking about what's really happening and execution on top of that. We can go into a bunch of meetings, talk about things for days, weeks, months, um, but really holding people accountable um, to making that change and executing on making impact, measuring that um, and being more sustainable. So thank you guys, but we're not done yet. <laughs> oh. We are going to our rapid fire round, which is my favorite part. If you listen to the pod, you know how excited I get about this round. Um, but it's just a time for our guests to answer rapid fire questions, 30 seconds or less, but no pressure. Um, <laughs> just to get a little bit, just to get to know you guys a little bit more and learn more about your background and thoughts. So are you guys ready? Ready. We're ready. Cool. David, let's start with you um, and we can go back and forth too. What's one tech tool or website that you or your organization has started using in the last year? You know, I'm not a tech person, but I can tell you, I'll give you an example of something that they should use, every nonprofit should use. And I, hopefully I see some people do this. It's not necessarily a tool, but it's a resource. And mm. if you don't know about it, you should know about it. It's called TechSoup. Do you know TechSoup? Yeah. Okay. Uh, and it's amazing what TechSoup, uh, just through your listeners, what do they do? They're a very large organization and they provide, uh, uh, hardware and software tech solutions to nonprofits at steeply discounted prices. Um, and frankly, I was embarrassed when I found about that, out about them because I've been on those supports. I didn't know them and shame on me. Um, so that's my contribution to the tech arena. And it's not just hardware and software. They will also do provide services like help desks and mm -hmm. uh, run your help desk for you and, and helping you to, with the mysteries, to me, mysteries of social media, um, <laughs> as we all struggle with. So that's my tech technology contribution. Yeah, Howell works with TechSoup all the time. So shout out to our Good. friends over there. Okay. Matthew, what's one tech tool? or website that your org has started using? Well, I'll take the low hanging fruit since David didn't. Uh, how about Zoom, for goodness <laughs> sake? Um, I don't know that I even heard uh, about that before, well, six months ago. And now, you know, it's uh, the world's conference room, right? Um, we use it every day with, with clients. And at first I will admit there was a steep learning curve and there were some uh, uh, issues, uh, not the least of which being my five-year-old twins video bombing just about every conference call I had. Um, they may jump into this one. We'll see. Um, 
but uh, it really is. It's 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 a great tool, or it can be. It's no substitute for in-person meetings, but it is a great tool for. Um, I think authenticity, you know, if my background weren't, weren't on, you'd see my uh, spare bedroom here. And you know, a lot of clients have seen that as well. And you know, I'm in their living rooms every day and, you know, meeting their family cat or their kids. And it's just kind of neat to see how people really live when you take off the veneer and the suit um, and uh, just, you know, really understand what people are dealing with. It, it creates a, uh, an openness and a vulnerability that I think uh, are really important uh, when you're having conversations, uh, especially at this moment in time. So um, that's mine. Yeah, definitely. Welcome to my bedroom. <laughs> uh, next question. Are there any tech issues you're battling with right now? Matthew, you start. Yeah, sure. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll continue with the uh, Zoom thread. Um, yeah, uh, bandwidth has been an issue. Um, so at this, at this moment, as we speak, my uh, Five-year-olds are logged on to Zoom in their kindergarten class. Uh, my <laughs> wife is a high school teacher uh, teaching uh, principles of biomedical science uh, 20 feet down the hallway from me, also on Zoom with a class of uh, 40 kids logged on. Uh, I'm logged on here. So uh, I'm amazed that nothing's cut out yet. And as soon as I say that, of course, it will. But uh, <laughs> yeah, just uh, keep keeping the, uh, the tech wheels spinning is, uh, is a challenge. David, any tech issues you're battling with? Well, yeah, and uh, I guess we're all battling with them, and I don't have a solution, but um, learning and staying on top of social media and how to use it uh, is so time-consuming, and quite honestly, keeping track by the time you learn one, it's starting to fade, and you have to go learn another <laughs> one, and I just don't know how you do that. We're trying to do that in terms of uh, getting our, our book out there and our website and so forth and marketing. But it's, you know, without staffing, it's a very, very difficult task. And again, like uh, when I have a toothache, I go to the dentist. I don't drill my own teeth. And I think, frankly, <laughs> the only solution is to outsource it, outsource it to the experts. The problem when you do that is you don't learn it. Someone mm. else is doing it, but you don't learn it. And you have yeah. to touch and feel. Can you guys talk about a mistake you made early in your career that shapes the way you do things now? How long do you have? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think the mistake I, I, the biggest mistake, and there are many of them I made was being too much in a rush uh, in the early days and not uh, wanting to go out and get things done really quickly. And uh, as opposed to uh, taking the time to do active listening, active listening is so important. Uh, and I have a rule for myself now is that uh, I will not respond on something, some weighty matter until I go off and really, really think about it and for 24 hours, uh, as opposed to jump in with I've got a solution, which when you're younger, you tend to like to think to do that. As you're older, as you're older and you recognize all the mistakes you've made, you tend to think, you know, I really need to give that some thought and also listen to what other people think on the subject. So active listening to me is really the biggest. And I didn't do as much as I should have when I was young. Yeah, I, I think that's a good one. I, um, I'll go back to uh, my early days. I was an intern at a, an investment firm 20 some odd years ago in college. And uh, my uh, mentor gave me one of those little investment wheels that you spin around and you can put in the amount of money you want to invest and the number of years you invest for and uh, the rate of compounding. And then the, the bottom wheel shows you how much money you have at the end of all that. And I was just amazed at you know, how much money you could make by investing a little bit periodically, but doing it diligently. So as soon as I got my first job, I was psyched to start investing. And this was in the late 90s, early 2000s, um, uh, right around the uh, tech bubble crash. 
And before that happened, um, I had been saving for a few months and I plowed every dime I had into this hot new tech mutual fund in January or February of 2000. I thought, man, here we go. I'm going to hit that number at the bottom of the investment wheel before you know it. And early retirement, look out. <laughs> um, about two months later, I was broke. And um, that taught me a very valuable lesson, which is that Chasing trends and the uh, hot new idea is a fool's errand. And really, um, you need to have a, a better thought out strategy uh, and stick to it. And I think uh, that lesson can be applied writ large to uh, people and organizations. Yeah, definitely. Um, can't empathize too much, but I, <laughs> I hear you out. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> Do you think NGOs can successfully go out of business? You know, it's interesting. Uh, one of the folks that we uh, interviewed um, had some thoughts on that because they had gone through a bankruptcy. Um, mm-hmm. Of course, they can't. They can't. Uh, but going out of business, to me, I'd say there are lots of steps along the ways before they go out of business. And uh, again, I come back to the concept of, of collaboration. Um, you know, do what you do well uh, and let other folks do what they do well. Um, but I think going out of business as a entity uh, that is working alone as opposed to collaborating. And I think that's, that's the answer. So they, they can go out of business. They are public benefit corporations. It happens. They also um, can, uh, can restructure. Uh, but so that would be my thoughts. Matt, any thoughts? You're the banker. I agree. I think, uh, I think they can. And in fact, they should, um, you know, more than they do. And that's not a knock on, on the industry or any particular organization. It's just, again, a, a realization of the fact that people within organizations should ask if the world really needs their nonprofit in its current constitution. If the answer is no, then they should look to collaborate, partner, merge, or wind down. Um, If you've solved the problem, good for you. Then go out of business and uh, tackle a new one. The the, uh, interview that David talked about was very impactful, and and it was just um, underscoring how there's no shame in going out of business. It's all about the impact that you're having and baking that wind down, that, that dissolution into your business plan if certain conditions are met. And if they are, you know, get pride out of the way and, and wind down and move on to the next battle. Uh, I think it's something that, that organizations don't contemplate enough and, uh, and they should. Yeah. If you had a Harry Potter wand for the industry, what would it do? Do we need to explain to David who Harry Potter is? No, 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 no. I, I took my kids to see the movies. Um, Matt, you go first. My Harry Potter wand would uh, magically remove pride. Hmm. And I think that pride in its evil incarnation, pride's a good thing, but it can also have a, a sinister side. And, and what it can do is it, it can inhibit open and honest conversations about how organizations can best work together uh, or with funders. Um, I think to, to set aside pride, you, you have to open yourself up to a certain degree of humility and vulnerability. Um, and, and you may have to admit that your program, your organization isn't having the intended effect or the impact that you hoped it would. Uh, and that is, that is hard for some people to open up and say, and, and many don't. 
So if we could get rid of, uh, of pride and just people uh, cause people to, to tell those sometimes uncomfortable truths, I think as a whole, it would make the sector better. You know, I, I think I'll give you a couple, but one is um, term limits. I think you really do have to have term limits on boards of directors. Um, now, it doesn't mean they have to go away and never uh, and, uh, not come back. In fact, there are, there are opportunities to have periods of time where you have to go off a board for uh, and maybe do work on a committee for a period of time before you come back on. I think this term limits clearly do have a place um, because you know you do need fresh blood, you need new fresh thinking, and quite honestly, having sit on some boards for a long period of time, I'm sure some some other folks coming in fresh will look at things differently. So I think that's one issue. And the second issue, um, also a pet peeve, is um, and my wife calls this the old pale stale male boardroom, um, where basically you don't have um, boards of directors that are really indicative of the community in which they serve and. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have uh, some people uh, on your board who um, were born with iPhones in their hand uh, or, you know, or below the age of 40, let's say 25 to 40, you're excluding one third, not to mention uh, different, um, you know, uh, backgrounds, um, you know, racial backgrounds and so forth, you're excluding one third of your community. And how can you serve the community if you're you know, you don't have members of the organization on there. And, and I think having dealt, worked with a lot of young people, uh, quite honestly, it's just so refreshing uh, to have new thinking uh, that you absolutely have to do that. I don't see enough non uh, nonprofits have uh, that kind of diversity, both in age, ethnicity, and so forth. What's your favorite question to ask an organization or a board member? My favorite question is, are you a builder or a maintainer? Uh, mm -hmm. that, that was asked. Uh, to me years and years ago, and I hadn't heard it then, and I've uh, mm. heard it a lot since. Um, but really, to me, it, it speaks to how you see the organization and your role within it. You know, is it an organization that's doing perfectly well, that's humming right along and having the impact that, uh, that it can, and you're just there to not screw things up? Um, that's okay, but that takes a certain kind of person. And mm. that type of person can be very different from, you know, a builder who really has as their strength, uh, changing course, changing strategy and, and, and changing things around to help organizations uh, magnify their impact or go in a completely different direction to uh, reform their strategy, if you will. And um, just because somebody is good in one seat doesn't necessarily make them good or effective in another. So mm -hmm. asking that question, I think right up front is, uh, is very powerful. I always like these days to ask, how are you accessing, how is your organization accessing or making use of uh, the major, major sea changes that are taking place in the investment community in the world uh, towards socially responsible investing uh, and other, other similar uh, environmental and socially governmental investing? Something like one third of the investing in the world right now is uh, done uh, through people or organizations that have want to tie a social mission with their investing. Um, and in fact, they want a double return. They want to make money, but they also want to do good work. Now, what's that? What's that doing? Is it's building a tsunami of capital that is available to the nonprofit industry, mm. uh, and you know, frankly, um, the. Many many new products. You know, Wall Street is, is 
is doing their job of inventing and constructing all kinds of new products to satisfy that demand because they're, fo they're following the supply. Uh, though that provides opportunities for financing for the nonprofit industry, such things as impact financing, as an example. Uh, similarly, those organizations, uh, foundations have, who have portfolios uh, need to be considering very carefully uh, if they're walking, walking the walk and talking the talk um, with their investment portfolios. Uh, and many of them are increasingly, but some are not. So if you're an organization whose responsibility or mission is to save, save the uh, rainforest, well, then you really don't have any business buying petroleum companies, do you? That's sort of, uh, you know, being uh, hypocrit hypocritical. So those are questions that uh, I like to ask. Uh, gives me a good sense of where the organization is in terms of what's happening in the industry and in the world today. Yeah, awesome. And my last and probably favorite question is, what advice would you give college grads looking to enter the social impact space? The, the first thing people, many people think about is, I have to go work for a nonprofit. And mm -hmm. the answer is, no, you don't. And you know this. Oh, by the way, thank you for being a B Corporation. I think that's so cool. <laughs> Um, but, you know, what's happening, there's an article in Fortune magazine some time ago about the development of, of the fourth sector, the blending of the three sectors into a fourth sector, uh, and such things as B corporations are a perfect example. So I can make, if I'm interested in social, I'm telling you your business, right? You know this, <laughs> but uh, frankly, it's, I think, a great opportunity. You don't necessarily think about having to go into the the uh, a non work for a nonprofit. You can work for a B corporation. You can work for a for a uh, health organization, which or a uh, CSR organization for a, a for profit organization. So the world you have so many opportunities available that it's not necessarily going down the street and working for your local, local soup kitchen. Yeah, I'd uh, I'd take the opposite tact. I, I think uh, my <laughs> advice would be uh, do it and do it now. Um, you know the the path to balancing your karma when when uh, I was younger was <laughs> you jump onto Wall Street and you go into dollar arbitrage or some other you know unimpactful endeavor make your millions and then uh, go join a board later on in life great okay that that's one way to do it uh, or give away uh, the money that you've made also another way to do it but you know why wait 40 50 60 years to uh, have an impact as David mentioned uh, and as we talk about in the book there's so many ways to have an impact through uh, unconventional means. You don't have to be a 501c to uh, make a difference in the world. So get in there. The, the sector, the social impact sector writ large needs smart, talented, driven people who are willing to blow up the status quo and, and make the world a better place. Uh, I think one of the really neat things David's a graduate of this program at a, at a local university here, the University of San Diego, and there are many others like it who have programs in nonprofit leadership. They graduate, mm -hmm. you know, a, a phalanx of young people who are just eager to, uh, to get into the sector and, and to help out and, and to have that intellectual capital now um, mm -hmm. at a young age uh, when they're uh, hungry and, uh, and idealistic is, uh, <laughs> is a positive thing. Uh, for the sector as opposed to waiting. So get in there and do it now. Awesome. Those are all my rapid fire questions. Thanks guys. That was fun. <laughs> uh, so now that we've kind of concluded our interview, where can people find you either on social media, um, a website that they can go to? Well, you're talking to the webmaster, self-taught webmaster <laughs> here. Um, it's uh, buildingsmartnonprofits.org. 
mm-hmm. or requiemforthegala.org. <laughs> uh, and you can contact <laughs> me at david at uh, billyspartnonprofits.org. Or wherever fine books are sold. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Thank you guys so much again. Thank you. Appreciate your time. Thanks, Teresa. It was a pleasure. Keep up the good work. Thanks. Bye-bye. This has been Using the Whole Whale podcast. If you want to keep learning more about these topics and others, head on over to wholewhale.com slash university to keep learning with us. Thanks, as always, to gregthomasmusic.org for his tunes that underwrite our tracks. They're fantastic. Hope you're doing well, Greg. And just a reminder, subscribes really help us on any platform that you listen to us on. Please give a thought to click and subscribe and maybe even a comment because we like hearing from you. 